All right. Hey, welcome everybody. Glad that you guys are here. You guys excited to hear a word from God today? I hope that you are. Special shout out to visitors. So glad that you guys are here. Um, And if it's your first time here, I want you to know it matters to us. It's important. It takes a lot to go out and find a new church or a new place and to give it a try. We appreciate that. We'd love to connect with you, myself or Pastor Gabe. We'll be around after service. We would love to talk to you to connect and just if you have any questions, anything like that, just to uh, answer any of those. But so glad that you're here. If you're online catching us, I know Broncos kicked off 20 minutes ago, so very few of you probably out there watching us online live right now, but wherever you catch us, um, we're glad that you're here. If you've missed any of the previous messages, we're in a series called Blameless. It's a study in the life of Job. And if you've missed any of the previous messages, go back and check out our archives. We've got a channel on YouTube. You can go through there and and check out all of our previous messages. I think it's important that we know where Job is coming from. This is a difficult message, or at least it can be. The whole book of Job has so many people that have all these notions about what it's about. If you ever... um, thought about the book of Job, probably the things that came to your mind were pain and suffering. Yay, first and foremost. And then perseverance, you know, patience in a trial. All of these things that, to be honest with you, not many of us want. (laughs) How many of us get up in the morning and go, I want to persevere in the face of a trial? Not many people do that. Oh, hey, by the way, I should probably share with you. Who remembers old Schoolhouse Rock? Right? All right. In case you see the, the face peeking out there, and you're like, what is that? What does he wear? Does he wear his jammies to, to church today? Um, yeah, you know, nobody thinks of the, of the book of Job and just goes, I want that to be me. Or very few. Let me be accurate. Very few. I want to let you know that there's a different way to look at the book of Job. There's a different way to look at, more importantly, the pain and the suffering that is in the world today, that is in our lives specifically. There's a different way that we can look at those things. And when we have these questions, how can a good God allow pain and suffering? How can a good God allow evil in the world? How can a good God allow whatever it is, that you want to fill in that blanks with, how can? That you're not the first person to ever ask that question. That is a question that has been central to mankind and and our relationship with God since the very, very beginning. And really, I think that's at the heart of Job. And if you wonder that, if you want answers for that question, you're not going to get it from the book of Job. I'm just telling you right now, if you're the kind of person that likes to skip to the end and find out, okay, what's the answer to all this? You're not going to find it. What Job does, though, I hope, is to raise some issues, some thoughts, maybe a different way to look at things in your life. And here's what I want to propose. I propose that God can and does often use pain and suffering in our lives and in the lives of others, unfortunately, some people that we love and we care about very deeply, God uses that, and God uses that to pull them into a deeper relationship with himself, to lift them to a height of faith, a height of, uh, of, of intimacy with him 
than they would have never experienced otherwise. How many people would rather just sit at home, me included, just sit at home and be comfortable? Don't mess with me. Don't mess with my ideas, my notions. I just want my life to be comfortable. I think most of us at some level strive for that. We just want comfort. But God uses extreme discomfort to pull us out of a place where we would just be more than happy to stay. He pulls us out of that contentment in order to show us that there's something far beyond what we would ever go for on our own. That's the idea of the book of Job, I believe, and so that's where we are. Now, let's get in. Again, if you've missed any of our previous messages, you can go back and check as we lay kind of some of the groundwork for that. But where we are right now, or I guess where we ended up last week, was we're in Job chapter 2, and we had just seen Job hit with this second round of afflictions. So remember, the very first thing that happened to him was that he lost all of his children, he lost his servants, he lost his livelihood in terms of all of his livestock and, and everything that he had that would support him and his family, he lost all of that. And in the midst of that, the last scripture that we shared last weekend was Job 2, chapter 10, or Job chapter 2, verse 10. In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Meaning, he's getting hammered one thing after another after another by the enemy. And last week, the result that made him say he did not sin with his lips, that second round of affliction, painful boils, blisters, ulcers on his skin. And this is a result of the enemy saying, okay, that first thing, taking away his livelihood, taking away everything that he had, even to the point of killing his children, wasn't enough to draw Job away from God, wasn't enough to make Job sin. And so the enemy ups the ante and asks for permission to afflict his body physically, to hurt his body with the assumption that surely if we hurt his body, we cause him pain, he's going to turn against you. And again, Job's response and all this, he did not sin with his lips. That's where we were last week. Now, this is the last three verses of chapter 10. We're going to spend the whole rest of this service on three verses, or chapter 10, chapter 2. And, but we're going to finish up by setting the stage for what happens next, because next we switch for the next, for the bulk of the book of Job, we switch to Job himself. And it's a discussion between Job and his friends. We're going to talk about his friends here today. This is the last section of what we're talking about here to be written in kind of what's called a narrative or a narrative prose sort of a way. The last half of the last chapter of Job is also written that way. In between, we have what's called poetry or epic poetry. If you've ever studied at high school or college, uh, the epics of, um, of uh, Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, things like that, they're, they're written in poetry or epic poetry. Anybody know the epic of Gilgamesh? It's like one of the oldest written epics ever, dated to some 2000 BC, coincidentally very similar to the time frame of Job right here. Um, but that's all written in an epic poetry form. We'll talk about that more as we go on. But that's where we find ourselves here. And I believe that's important to at least point out because remember I told you that I believe that Job himself, some scholars believe differently, but it's all over the board. Some people believe Job himself wrote this book of Job in about 2000 or so B.C. 
Now, I believe that he wrote the, the middle section, the epic poetry, the dialogues between him and his friends. But the first part and the second part are written slightly differently. And I believe that indicates that either um, somebody in the time of Abraham, which was a little bit later, or maybe Moses himself, wrote that introduction, you know, the prologue and the epilogue, and they're in a different style. That's how some of the things would have been known. Job was totally unaware of this conversation, this challenge that happened in heaven between God and the devil. So he wouldn't have known of that. He may have known later and filled in the blanks. We don't know. It's not critical for our theology, but I believe that's how it explains some of these things. Now, the arrival of Job's friends, which is where we are. Job's friends are are arriving here to give him comfort, right, air quotes, comfort, should have been should have been a great blessing for him. Comfort, encouragement, that's, that's always a good thing. We are, as human beings, we're wired to want friendship, to want companionship, right? Who remembers, who remembers this? Great touch, Jeremy, adding the, adding the music. Why was this show so popular, do you think? I think this show was so popular because it illustrated what we all crave at some level, a group of friends to surround us that will love us no matter what we're going through, that will support us. You can take that down now because everybody's looking past me at the screen going, I remember this, you know, your favorite episode. But we all want that. We all want that kind of connection. And I think that's normal. We're made. God made us. For fellowship, going all the way back to Genesis, you know, in the garden, the story between of, of Adam and Eve, Genesis 2.18, it's not good that a man should be alone. Now, that was specifically in relationship to the creation of a helper of Eve for Adam, but the point's the same. Great comfort can be gained by friends. Proverbs 27.9 says, the heartfelt counsel of a friend is as sweet as perfume and incense. Proverbs 17, 17, that one I think we have on screen. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. I love this one because it's not just about the good times. Adversity, that's when, when you really find out who your friends are, there's always that saying, you don't know who your real friends are until you have to move and who shows up, right? But a, a friend loves always. That's the easy part, I think. Your brother is born for adversity. We're born to crave that. And it's a good thing created by God. It's a need that's in us that, that God in his way is going to fulfill that need. But like anything else that's good and is a gift from God, it becomes a target for the enemy. It becomes something that Satan can and will use to twist and use it for his purposes. That's exactly what we see unfolding here in the book of Job. We'll talk about that as we go on. The enemy always wants to take that good thing from God and twist it just enough to where it's no longer godly and it's no longer good for you. We have to be vigilant of that. So let's get into scriptures here. Job chapter 2, verse 11. First of the three for today. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. Okay, sounds 
Very straightforward. Three friends. These three friends probably, we don't know an awful lot about him, about these guys. Scripture doesn't tell us a lot. We infer a lot about that from the interactions that we see here. But probably they were friends that he met originally through his trading business. Remember, Job lived in a, in a place called Uz, which was really a land situated geographically great for trading. So, you know, all these different trade routes from the north, south, east, west would all come through that region. And he made a very, very good living providing assistance. He provided camels, which was an ancient trucking business, kind of taking things through his land. Who knows how else he supported that, but he made a lot of money and a lot of friends by those introductions that he made through the, through the services that he offered. That's how he made his wealth. These guys, these three guys, are all from regions that neighbor Uz. So they had to come from a long way. It wasn't just simply a matter of like, hey, I think I'll go visit my friend and you show up. It was a process for them to do it. You had to be wealthy enough to travel. You couldn't just decide, I'm going to travel across country, go see my friend. There were roving bands of nomads uh, in the desert who would more than happily take everything you had and kill you. So it was dangerous to travel often in those times. So you had to have, you'd have bodyguards or servants that would come with you. It was an undertaking to travel. So this is no light thing that they're doing. Where it says they made an appointment together, meaning they didn't, they didn't just decide, I'm going to go on my own. They came together outside of Job. Job didn't ask them to come. He didn't say, I need my friends here, make a phone call or a Facebook post. He didn't do any of that stuff. They knew, they had heard that a friend was struggling. A friend needed them. And so their response is, let's get together. Let's make a plan to travel together then and go down and see our friend, see what we can do. A lot of people question their motive. Why? Why would their friends do this? Okay, number one, because they're friends. But Scripture itself tells us flat out that they came to come together to sympathize with him and comfort him. Sympathy and comfort. There's no deeper theological dark meaning that we should look for. This is why they came, to sympathize with him and to comfort him. Now, I think it was very well intended. It was very much from the heart. It's very much what a good friend or friends ought to do. You're thinking about your friend first, and you're going out of your way to go and comfort him. That's where they start. Unfortunately, they don't stay there. But let's talk about the friends really quick. First one, Eliphaz the Temanite. Okay? His name, first of all, a lot of times in Hebrew, a name has a meaning. It's got words associated with it, and it has a meaning outside that. That can be significant. Eliphaz the Temanite, his name means God is fine gold. Okay, sort of indicates to us that he at least has a relationship with God or worships God, if that's going to be his name. He was born, or not born, he was from a city in what we would call Edom, uh, Temanite, uh, or Temen, Anytime you see the word ite, Temanite, Edom, ite, that just means that's the area, the region that they're from. So that's where he's from. And we, we think, again, Teman was a city in Edom, very well known for producing wise men. I don't know if they just had a really good public school system or what was going on there. But in that area, it's kind of just known a lot of wise men throughout Scripture come from that region. It's actually named for a grandson of Esau, 
So we see scripturally how that, how that thread carries through. But here's the thing. He seems to be, I say seems to be, he's the self-proclaimed authority on history and ancient wisdom. And he's more than happy to share what he knows with Job. Some of it's invited, some of it isn't. It's clear that he's the leader of the group. It's clear just because um, he's the first one to speak. Being the first one to speak, that's kind of a place of honor when you come together, indicating he's sort of the leader of the group. Second guy, Bildad the Shuite. Shuite, uh, his name means son of contention. Again, maybe kind of indicating a little bit about his character. He's from this region called Shua. Shua is named after a son of Abraham. Now, this is one of the things that people use when you're trying to figure out when the book of Job was written. Was it written before, after? Again, theologically, not super important. But if you're trying to think when was this written, a lot of people take that area being named after a son of Abraham saying, okay, well, not only did it have to be then after Abraham, but long enough for Abraham to have a son and the area then to be named after him and then for somebody to be born and raised there, to be from there, it's entirely possible that the region gained its name later. So, and again, the, the prologue and the epilogue, I believe, written by someone else later in time, possibly Moses himself, they would have then identified that area that way. So it doesn't necessarily mean it was either before or after, but people do use that to, to help date. Those Bible geek friends of mine will like, okay, you're going to be thinking about that. But here's the thing. This Bildad, he, he's kind of the philosopher of the group, or at least he's kind of the self-proclaimed philosopher of the group. But he doesn't come up with any new wisdom. What he does is he just recycles and regurgitates the old wisdom that he knew. I'm just going to spout any sort of phrase that I think might be applicable to the situation. These catchphrases, tried and true, maybe work, and they're not all inaccurate, but they're not all geared for Job at this time and place. He's just kind of spouting off what he knows. So we see that. That's Bildad. Then the last, fra- the last friend, Zophar, the Namathite, His name, now this is an indication that the name doesn't always tell you something. It's not only significant. His name in Hebrew either means Harry, not not like Harold, Harry, or pleasant abode. So he's either extremely hairy, maybe he's got a big beard or something, or he lives in a nice house, or it's not significant. Either of those. You choose which one you're going to go with. We don't know a lot else about him, but he does... He's another self-proclaimed authority, and his is on moral law. He's a self-proclaimed authority on moral law, what God will do in a certain situation and why he would do it. So that's kind of where he comes from. Now, the three friends, a lot of people, again, put more significance into the friends and their background than, than I think really deserves to be there. But it is important to note that each one of these friends kind of comes at this angle of Job's suffering from a different viewpoint for different reasons. And they kind of represent three sort of distinct, subtle, but distinct areas of thought for this that that explain Job's pain and suffering. So first of all, Eliphaz, again, the leader, he believes that Job is strictly just, he's being punished for his sins. Job had to have sinned. God punishes sin. Therefore, 
Job is being punished for this. And his argument, again, argument, his idea is this word theodicy. I taught on that last week or the week before. The idea of theodicy sounds very, very um, intelligent, but it just means it's where your mindset is, specifically in regards to why do people suffer. That's called a theodicy. And so his argument treats suffering as punishment and blames human free will as the reason. So in other words, God gave you free will, you're making bad choices, and therefore you get punished. It's pretty straightforward, right? The second one, though, his friend Bildad, he agrees with all that, but then he adds his own little twist to it, and he says that, that Job's being tested in order that he may be possible to receive a greater reward eventually when it's done. I don't necessarily disagree with that, but he is saying that Job's suffering is a wake-up call based on his sin, a wake-up call to repent, and if you repent, then God will bless you. So that's kind of where, where he's coming from. He, again, makes this baseline assumption that Job had to have sinned, and that's why. And if he would just repent, then God would restore him. So... Not all inaccurate, but just enough off to make it difficult here. Zophar then, the third of the friend, adds his two cents to the whole thing. And he says that God suffers, or or that Job is suffering just because God wants him to. It's just God's will. You've done wrong. You're not on the right path. And God wants you to. The whole idea there is it completely takes any responsibility, good or bad responsibility, off of God for Job's suffering. In other words, God couldn't have caused it. God wouldn't endorse it. This is all happening outside of God's providence. And it's important that we understand that is not accurate. We'll talk about that more as we go through here, but they all have, all of them, no matter the angles they come from, they all have one basic, basic bedrock assumption in common, and that is this. Bad things happen to bad people, and good things happen to good people. Pretty straightforward, and that's what they all come at it from. Here's the problem, though. If good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, how would you explain the suffering of Jesus Christ? Jesus, the most perfect, sinless person that ever walked the face of this planet, endured pain and suffering beyond what we can even imagine. And that does not fit with any of that baseline assumption. So that being the case, there's got to be something wrong with the basic ground-level way that we look at pain and suffering. Could it be different than our assumptions? That's the whole, that's the theological apple cart that is threatening to be tipped over in this book of Job. And his friends, they don't like to have their theological apple cart messed with. Not many of us probably do. Some of us are so open-minded, we're like, I just want to take it all in and just learn and grow every day. And if I have to set aside everything I ever knew with this new revelation, I'll do it. But that's not most of us. Most of us say, I spent my entire life building myself, my knowledge, my foundational theology to where I am today, and I don't like it to be messed with. And we will rebel and we will close our mind and our ears to anything that threatens that theology. 
that's where Job's friends are. We don't like it when those things are threatened. We'll talk more about that later. But here we are then, back at the scene. Job's friends, they've come together, and they've gone to visit Job. And when they get there, they do not like what they see for a multitude of reasons. Here's kind of a a little painting that sort of illustrates what that looks like. Here's poor Job sitting on the ground over here, covered in boils, his wife in the background. She's just lamenting what they're going through. And his friends over here. You can see they've come. The one in the middle is clearly repulsed by what Job looks like. But they're there. They're obviously they're well to do. They've got jewelry, they've got they've got gold weapons, they've got cloaks that are very colorful. These are some men that are very well off. And up until this moment, Job was one of them. And the problem here is if this could happen to Job, they need to figure out why this happened. Because it can't be unexplainable. Because if it's unexplainable and they don't know why, that means it could happen to them. And nobody wants to think about that. That's where they are. So, Job chapter 2, verse 12. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each one of, the, each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads towards the sky. Okay, this is a traditional morning sequence here. You, you raise your voice, you're weeping, you're wailing, you're crying out, you're tearing your robe as a sign of grief and mourning, and they're throwing dust over their heads or on their heads, again, as a sign of mourning. That is a traditional kind of sequence of mourning that we can talk about in a different message someday. But just the fact that it's tradition does not mean it was by rote. They meant this. This was heartfelt grief and anguish overseeing what their friend is going through. They didn't like it. This shell of a man sitting on the ground, just the last time they saw him, he was one of them. He was dressed in finery. He had everything they had. Not only that, probably more because they, were, they looked up to him. He was a good man. Everybody in the region knew that Job was such a good man. And if this could happen to him, it could happen to them. So the question then is, were they mourning the fate of their friend, just simply that he was in pain and had had all this happen to him? Were they mourning that, or were they mourning and reacting out of fear? That could be me. You've heard the phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. How many of us do that lamenting the person who's going through the suffering? Or are we simply saying, dodge that bullet. That might be where Job's friends are right here. We're going to talk about that, and we'll see really where their heart is. I think it's just, that could be any one of us. And so, therefore, we have to make sense of what Job is going through. Someone is suffering. It can't be random. There has to be a reason, because if there's not a reason, it could happen to me. How many of us watch news stories? I didn't talk about this in the first service, but how many of us watch on the news? Drive-by shootings, um, highway road rage, different things that happen in the news, tragedies. We see them, and we immediately were like, I need the rest of the story because it can't be random. There has to be, he knew that person. They were selling drugs out of the home, and that caused it. Um, Whatever it is, there has to be some reason that we can finally put and go, I knew it. I knew, I knew it was, a, it was an ex-girlfriend who came in. There has to be a reason, something that we can point to and go, okay, that explains why that wouldn't happen to me. It gives us comfort. 
We don't like the unknown and the unexplainable. And so that's where Job's friends are. They're like, we've got to put some sense to this and fast because it's going to mess with their heads. So that's where they are. But their response at this point, their response is absolutely a godly response. And they respond only the way that a true, close, intimate friend can. Job chapter 2, verse 13. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. They just simply sat with him. They were just there. They weren't there, at least at first, to offer advice. They were just there to be with him, to comfort him. This idea, this seven days of silence, that's actually the basis for a Hebrew tradition called Shiva, either sitting Shiva or Shiva week. And it's a traditional seven-day time of mourning that Hebrews um, observe for cases of extreme grief. Usually it's death. And we talk about the significance of numbers. People have asked me about that. And the number seven, obviously, is very significant. I'll talk more about that sometime later. But this has actually become, this seven-day period, has become this Hebrew tradition. And it's all based on how Job's friends respond here in the book. And here are the steps for to, to... sit Shiva or or Shiva week with somebody who's mourning. First of all, the visitors. If you're visiting someone who's mourning, you enter the house quietly and you don't say anything. You just enter and you don't speak. You're just there. You don't speak, in fact, until the mourner speaks to you. That's very, very important to understand that tradition. It's based, number one, it's tradition, but it's tradition very much based in wisdom. And the idea of it is how do you know what the mourner needs to hear until you know where their mind is, until you know what they're thinking? A lot of us, we have our go-to. With mine, it's humor. Somebody could be mourning in, in grief, and I'll go in, and I'll start trying to lighten the mood. Let me lighten the mood. Some people will talk about Talk about the Bronco game. Let's talk about the weather. Let's talk about whatever. But I have to, we feel like we've got to do something to lighten this heavy mood that's going on in here. And maybe that's what the mourner needs. Maybe that's perfect. But what if that's not what they want? What if they just want quiet? They just want you to be there with them. Just feel your support. Maybe that's it. Maybe what they need to hear, well, a lot of us will say, oh, the your, your loved one was so amazing. We're going to miss them. It's, it's going to be terrible. They did so many great things. Maybe that's what they need to hear, but maybe they want the mood to be lightened. You won't know that, point being, unless you listen to where they are first. That's the idea. I think that's something that we can all take away any of our interactions that we have with one another. Listen first and then respond. We all want to fix it. That's kind of it's kind of where Job's friends are going here. Have you ever gone into a conversation, especially one that you know is going to be difficult? You've already rehearsed what you're going to say before you get there. I've not only gone through what I'm going to say, I've taken my Bible and I've conveniently dog-eared and marked these certain scriptures that I'm going to read to you. Okay? Meaningful, yes. But is that what you need at that moment? I've already rehearsed in my head. And so what you say in your response needs to give me that opening for me to like, okay, I knew you were going to say that. Here's the scripture I'm going to pull out. Okay, 
A lot of us do that. Proverbs 18.13 addresses that idea. Here it is. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Doesn't mean it's not good advice. It's not godly advice. But you need to know, are you giving it at the right time? And if you don't listen first, you're not going to know. There's no mention there of good advice or bad advice. If you give an answer before you listen, it's folly and shame. There's a quote that's it's attributed to Mark Twain, and it reads like this. It's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. It's attributed to him. It's actually attributed to a number of different people, but it's funny. If you go back in Scripture, it's a paraphrase of Proverbs 17, 28. So the source is actually biblical. It's a biblical idea. Job's friends had all kinds of ideas what they were going to say based on what they heard. Remember, they, they met up and then traveled down to meet him, so they probably had conversations along the way like, hey, have you heard what Job's going through? This is, yeah, and I heard this, and I heard that, and here's what I'm going to say, and here's the advice I'm going to give, and I'm going to give him this. So they probably had rehearsed or at least thought about what they were going to say to him all the way down, and all they needed was for Job to give him the opening. You ever stand like you're just waiting for the person to say the thing you think they're going to say, and then you pounce on that. I knew you were going to say that. Here's my brilliant answer to that. I say it all, I do that all the time. Maybe it's just me. But that's where his friends are, and they just need him to fess up and admit his transgressions so that they can pour out this wealth of wisdom that they have. As soon as he did that, they, they'd be ready to go. Here's the problem, though. When Job finally does speak, he does not respond the way that they had rehearsed in their minds. He didn't respond the way they thought they were going to, to, to face there, and it was a problem for them. If Job could really, truly stick to this idea that he's blameless and didn't do anything to deserve this and wouldn't fess up to this sin, then their theology was all wrong. They had to get him to that place where he would do it. They came to him with the best intentions, but they all failed in one important respect, and that's that they all made assumptions on what he needed to hear and why he needed to hear it before they ever even got there. That's a problem. When we attempt, let me say this as clearly as I can, when we are speaking on behalf of God, we're either offering advice to a friend or loved one saying, the Bible says, or God says, or we're offering this biblical scriptural advice uh, that we know, when we are going to do that to a friend, we should always talk to God about that friend first before we talk to that friend about God. Let me say that again. Before you talk to a friend about God, talk to God about that friend. He will tell you what they need and when they need it. Sometimes saying less is better. But Job's friends completely skipped that critical step. They started spouting off this canned stock wisdom, not, not, not heresy, good advice, good philosophy, good proverbs, good wisdom. They start spouting this off, but the problem is it's all just canned. 
Have any of you ever had somebody try to comfort you by offering you just these canned phrases? Maybe they read it in their devotional that morning or it's what came up in their Facebook feed. Oh, that's a good, where can I fit that in today? Sometimes it's helpful, but it's not always helpful. The problem is here, they were trying to fix Job. They thought they were wise enough, smart enough, well-versed enough, had enough relationship with God, certainly important and successful enough in order to be able to fix Job. How many of us want to be fixers? I know it's something that guys in general struggle with. Chuck Swindoll has this quote about fixers. Sufferers attract fixers the way that roadkill attracts vultures. Bottom line there, don't, be, don't try to be a fixer. Don't try to fix someone. Certainly don't be a vulture and here's, this is a term that I use a lot. Don't be a drive-by shooter. I haven't copyrighted that, so you feel free to use that. Say, you should do this. You should do that. It's easy to drop a should and then walk away, thinking, I've done my part. I told him what he should do. Whether he does it or not, that's on him. Instead of that, be a real friend. A real friend, being a real friend, it's messy. It's difficult, it requires investment, and it's rarely about you. It's almost always about the other person. It requires far more actions than just words. So we all, when we're talking about investing, that you have to invest. Be a friend requires investment on our part, requires intentional effort on our part. When we look at our daily lives, we all invest, I think most of us do, in those things we think are important. Whether it's education or financial investing, it's good wisdom. And I think most of us do at some level. We invest in those things that are important to us. But here's the thing. We should also prioritize investing in the things that are important to God. First and foremost, invest in things that are important to God. What's important to God? Jesus gave us the answer in Scripture. I don't think there's a more clear Scripture that talks about what's important to God. Matthew 6, 19 to 21, it's the words of Jesus himself. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Stop right there. Could it be more clear saying it's not about your stuff? It's not about your stuff. It never was. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Again, it's not about your stuff. Your stuff can go away in a second. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your treasure. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. So if it's not, if it's not I need to stockpile gold bars for heaven. They've got their own, by the way. They don't need yours. If it's not that, if it's not storing up stuff and jewels and money and CDs and bonds and, and any of that kind of stuff, what's it about? What's God's treasure? I believe, and I've taught on this before, I'll do it again sometime, God's treasure is you. You are God's treasure. God's children are his treasure. Because that's what it's all about is making sure that his treasure has relationship with him that his treasure 
is there to spend eternity with him. God's children are his treasure. And therefore, I think our investment needs to be with each other. Invest in God's treasure. Invest in each other. So, think of who in your life are you investing in? Who in your life are you, are you in that, that, that messy, sometimes difficult, I am investing in your life? And kids don't count for this purposes. Kids don't count. We should all, as a parent, you invest in your children's lives. This is about outside of your home. Who are you investing in outside of your home just because they are God's treasure? This can be friendship. This can be mentoring. There's a lot of different ways that we can do that. But I think we're discouraged a lot because we think that we're either not, I don't know enough about Scripture. I'm not, I'm not together enough in my own life to even be a good friend, much less offer any kind of advice or mentoring to anybody. The Apostle Paul boiled it all down to the simple statement, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. I'll just read it to you. He says this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's it. It doesn't mean that you're going to try and take, you're not sitting there going, okay, I need to invest in somebody. I get it. There's this one guy. He is messed up more than I know, and I think I can fix him. That's my target. It's not about finding somebody you can fix. In fact, that shouldn't even be your goal. It should be following Christ's example because that's how we'll do it. Job's friends had it partly right. They were on the right track to start with, and then they very quickly turned into, we need to fix him. And they all had their own ideas of how to fix him. But the bottom line, we need to fix him. Remember, our job is not to fix the broken. There's only one that can do that. His name is Jesus. Our job is just to be a good friend. Follow the example of Christ, which was to love and to serve. The two things that he did mostly, he loved first and he served. That's the example of Christ. And if we just simply follow that example, we'll blow it sometimes, but we'll get it right more often than not. Stop trying to fix people. So next week, next week we get into chapter three. Chapter three, we start going into Job's friends and what they're discussing. So if you want to study ahead, look at chapter three. But remember, our job when we go out into the world We should be investing in God's treasure, pouring into one another. We ought to be doing that. Seek God first. Let him speak to you and do everything in love. Not trying to fix. So let's pray. Worship team, by the way, you guys can come on up. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy far beyond what we deserve Lord, we are thankful that we don't get what we deserve. Jesus took what we deserve to reconcile us to you. And so, Lord, all we want to do is to be that reflection of you to those around us. We want to value your treasure the way that you do. So, Lord, open our eyes to see those people around us that we can pour into, those people around us that need what we can offer and that we need what they can offer. Give us the wisdom to see those people and 
how we can interact and be the reflection of you. Father, we praise you this day and every day for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to take communion together right now. Uh, If you're at home, grab whatever you've got. You need two elements. You need one representing the body, one representing the blood of Christ. If you're here in-house at the table in the back, we have little single-serve cups. You can grab those if you'd like. And communion is, is very simple. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance that gets placed on communion sometimes, a lot of ritual. I think the more we add ritual to something, the more we lose track of why we did it in the first place. The wafer in this case tastes like cardboard. It's not much, but it represents the broken body of Christ given for you, full well knowing the pain that would be involved. But he gave it for you and he gave it willingly. And it's that kind of sacrifice that he modeled for us when we try to model that for others. So if you agree with that sacrifice, take the body. The blood of Christ is the blood of the new covenant. It's that blood that was shed for you on the cross in order to reconcile you to the Father. In order that you would never have to spend a day just trying to figure it out because you couldn't have communion and fellowship with the Father. Through the blood of Christ, we are all reconciled to him and we can stand blameless in front of the Father. Take the blood. Father God, we thank you for who you are and we praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you guys. Oh, I'm sorry. We have prayer teams here. I always forget this part and I apologize. Prayer is so important. We'll see as we go through the book that prayer is such an important aspect of a Christian life. So we have a couple ways to do it. We have prayer team live here. They'll be in the back wearing a lanyard. If you need prayer for anything, see them. They would be blessed to be able to pray with you. We also have, if you're more the anonymous type, on the crosses over here, we have little uh, containers of notes, note cards. You can put a cro- uh, prayer request on that note card and pin it to the cross. We will collect those after service and we'll pray over those throughout the week. Our pastors and our prayer team will do that. Um, But let's take time to do that. If you're out there online, you can just in the comments put in a prayer request and we will always pray over those. But again, absolutely be blessed. Take advantage of what the Lord offers. Fellowship and communion with his saints. That's you and you're his treasure. Bless you guys.
God 